This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. For thousands of years, long before the terms Sasquatch or Bigfoot were a part of public consciousness, the knowledge of giant, hairy, human-like creatures occupying remote areas across North America has been a part of the indigenous oral histories across many groups. From the Salish of the West Coast to the Mi'kmaq of the Northeast, the forest dwellers were a part of life, and navigating the forest meant that you may encounter one such creature, or perhaps many. Although the majority of encounters are mere sightings, there are those few who can attest to the violent nature and terror that these beings can evoke. Indeed, fatalities have been reported, and in other cases, those involved are left traumatized by something that they cannot fully explain, and a creature yet to be identified. Join us on Into the Portal for part one in our series looking into one of the foundational subjects in cryptozoology, as we kick things off with some of the strangest tales in all of Sasquatch and Harry Hominid lore. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amberay. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we are back after Dark Week. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thanks for joining us again. We were uh, we were away last week, but we're back with something that I think you guys have been wanting for a long time. Mm-hmm. We've had a uh, bunch of people posting different articles and stuff in the forum on hairy hominid creatures. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, so we're jumping right into it. We right. are covering today, well, we're doing an entire series on Sasquatch. Sasquatch. The classic cryptozoological case, right? But what we wanted to do is kick it off by kind of going a little bit of a different direction mm-hmm. and focusing on the violent encounters with Sasquatch mm-hmm. and with other creatures similar to Sasquatch. Exactly. Because typically, Bigfoot and Sasquatches, I think, aren't necessarily known as gentle giants per se, but definitely aren't known in the normal discourse um, as being, you know, violent creatures like a werewolf or like other sort of, you know, beast of exactly mm-hmm. other mythical creatures or cryptozoological creatures. Because we have covered um, hairy hominids before uh, in other parts of the world. We've covered right. the Yaren. We have covered the oh my gosh, Orang Pendek. The Orang Pendek just recently on yes. our Patreon, and those were really fun. But those were smaller. They're yeah. the minis. Now we're going to the big. We are. Size. That's actually <laughs> interesting, though. You mentioned like Orang Pendek had elements that were violent too so there might be some crossover here that we dip back into the yoring pendek exactly and almost like um the tendencies to sort of interact with the peripheries of human societies and things like that definitely Mm -hmm. um but before we get right into it though we have a couple of uh things to go through shout outs our housekeeping (laughs) that's right so i just want to give a quick shout out to camille she just reached out to us like today or i just got the message today and she was just she had some great feedback and uh we always appreciate it when people come to us with intelligent comments and and critiques of the show right if they have things to add that like you know we haven't mentioned or things they want to correct like that's i like that because that's the only way the show gets better it's the only way you learn right and we're not perfect 
perfect and we don't claim to be experts in anything. Like we, mm-hmm. you know, like we, we're both, you know, whatever, went to university and stuff, studied anthropology and things, <laughs> but we're not experts. And so we love it when we get this kind of feedback. So exactly. thank you so much um, for reaching out. We really appreciate it. It's that. like the classic um, trope of like the humanities and art students. Where it's like, <laughs> we know a little bit about a lot of stuff, but we definitely don't claim to be experts by any means. So no. yeah, thank That's you. That's why we're that. having these conversations, right? We well, just want yeah. to open the floor. Totally. And then I guess we do have some other news too. Um, we are actually moving officially to a two-week format and this is just so we can keep bringing you guys the best possible content that we can create yeah um we don't want anything that's rushed or half-assed and (laughs) as of late our lives have been sort of chaotic uh so yeah we just kind of thought that these were some measures that we need to put into place definitely and it's kind of funny like we started that way anyway right like when we first started the show we were on a kind of a two-week format and so we're kind of going back to that a little bit i know i I was trying to remember actually when we switched over to the weekly i know we were just so gung-ho we're like we want to do this every week so (laughs) so we just jumped into it but yeah no like amber said we really just want to focus on the research and make sure we're bringing you guys like the best possible entertainment right like we Mm want to refine the editing and make sure it's all the best show that it can possibly be and it gives us more time to actually look into the stuff that you guys send to us too all these articles and things like that exactly Um, just enriches the whole conversation absolutely but of course um for all the dark, dark weeks, quote unquote, uh, always look forward to Epic Film Fridays, That's right? That's right. We've got a lot of really cool suggestions. Uh, we are going to be doing that Ascension redo. That's going to be coming out. So <laughs> yeah. keep don't hold your breath, but keep waiting for that one. And then as well, uh, Matt Drew and uh, Pericles over in uh, Twitter, He both of these guys uh, got at us with some cool... Uh, movie suggestions. Awesome. So, yeah, I look forward to those Sick. coming forth soon. Sweet. I'm mm-hmm. stoked on that. All right, All let's right. get into it. Okay, cool. So before we... <laughs> oh, wait a second. Sorry. Okay. Disclaimer here. <laughs> yep. Um, right now I sound like I've been smoking a pack uh, for about 40 years <laughs> and I apologize. <laughs> I'm just getting over chest cold. We both kind of are actually. So if we end up hacking up a lung in here, you guys will know why. Mm-hmm. But uh, you actually don't sound too, too bad. No? No, it could be worse. Okay. You're sounding For okay. me right now, I'm like, ooh, I'm so nicely. It's gross. <laughs> you not. You don't have the full Ray Romano going on quite yet anyway. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to give a little bit of basic history. Like, we feel that you guys listening probably have a good idea on the history of mm-hmm. Bigfoot. Um, yeah, like, these sightings obviously um, begin in antiquity. They've been around for thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, even early explorers such as Leif Erikson uh, reported in 986 AD, his terrifying encounter with what he called ugly, hairy monsters with, quote, great black eyes. Crazy. Yeah. And obviously, indigenous lore on this subject goes back much further than memory permits. Right. Um, But again, right, like this is, like you mentioned already, the main thrust of this first part isn't to cover Sasquatch comprehensively. It is, because it is such a diverse and mainstream paranormal topic, we want to focus on, like you said, the most bizarre and the most violent and terrifying Indeed. accounts with these massive, hairy, bipedal hominid creatures. And yeah, so let's kick it off, Andrew. Let's yeah, for give sure. You a little... Leif Erikson, though, I got to just touch on that for a sec because that's that's way back. Yeah. That's crazy. We have a friend named after him. We do indeed, actually. <laughs> actually, I don't know if it was actually named after the Explorer, but he well, has similar heritage. <laughs> he does indeed, actually. We should ask him about that. Mm-hmm. We should ask him what he thinks about this subject, too. He'd probably have some interesting thoughts. Totally. I thought this was really interesting, though, and we are going to get into the... Not discrepancies, but the um, the spectrum of physical descriptions of these creatures. Yeah. And I really thought it was interesting how he referred to them as having these great black eyes. Yeah. Because you do get other descriptions of, say, glowing eyes, like yellow eyes, yeah. in some accounts even red eyes. Yeah. And that is interesting to me. And, of course, that could be... Um, 
part and parcel of just like the reflectivity if there was a light source nearby or not like he could have just been looking into like the blackness of like their yeah. sunken in sockets kind for of sure thing. and there was no like the yeah that classic like animal reflection like when you're driving along the road and you see a dog or a cat yeah. or something and it's that bright eye exactly yeah so not like the reflective but I didn't actually come across where he encountered this. This was just a reference from Lauren Coleman's book. It's called Bigfoot, uh, True right. Story of Apes in America. Yes. And he just references it right off the bat in, like, I think it was chapter six or eight or something. You'd have to imagine it would have been in, like, the northern east coast of Canada, somewhere along there, right? Oh, yeah, because were... that's where he was exploring. Right, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which is uh, definitely an area we're going to get into in this episode because there's, there's some interesting differences and interesting similarities when we look east to west. And this mm-hmm. is a massive territory where there's these creatures being sighted, and it's just so unique how there are these differences and similarities too. Like, are these the same thing? Are they coming from the same source? Anyway, we're going to get into all that stuff. (laughs) Exactly. So, basic history, though. This actually comes from an excerpt from uh, a book I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And I've been working on it for a long time, and it's still not even close to being done. But uh, (laughs) it's a book on cryptozoology um, focused in Canada. But uh, here's a little bit of the history on Sasquatch. We feel like you guys probably know the gist, but here he goes anyway. So... It's hard to believe that a short time ago, Bigfoot and Sasquatch were relatively unknown to the majority of the North American population outside of indigenous groups. The names are almost completely interchangeable with only small degrees of difference in the description of the creature over the years. However, Sasquatch is something unique to Canadian history. So the term was actually coined in the 1920s by a journalist by the name of J.W. Burns in an attempt to differentiate the sightings between the United States and those on the Pacific coast of British Columbia and elsewhere in Canada of these giant, hairy, unknown creatures. So he came up with the name after working very closely with the Pacific Pacific Native informants um, and learnt words such as Sokwetal and Soskutal, that's the best I can do. Both used in describing giant human-like hairy forest dwellers. So his contributions to the discourse of Sas- Sasquatch were immensely significant because of the way he wrote about the creatures as if they were simply another separate group that happened to be giant and hairy who interacted with other indigenous populations. He wasn't writing about them as a mythical monster or anything like that. This portrayal of Sasquatch is hard to come by today as these creatures are, for the most part, regarded as fantasy and myth in popular culture. Oh, yeah. They've just been totally propped up into this, like, folkloric realm of of pop culture and everything, right? Yeah. That's interesting, though. Um, Yeah, I love that, how he talked about them as a separate group because he is, he's basically internalizing how the indigenous groups saw them as well, right? They did yeah. see them as a different tribe. It was just like, you know, like they're the mountain men. Exactly. We, we, we give them their territory, we leave them alone, and that's great. And they just do the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating, right? It's, um, they don't talk about trade or things like that, but it's just like there's their area, and then there's places that they just don't venture into. Mm-hmm. It's pretty pretty crazy when you think well about defined. it, Well right? defined. Yeah, Definitely. totally. That's interesting, too. Like, um, on the flip side, you're talking about, like, how these aren't considered, like, monstrosities per se, but definitely kind of, like, feared or, like, regarded with respect kind of thing. Definitely. Um, they're on the East Coast. There's actually a historical reference from the Mi'kmaq Nation, and uh, this was an encounter they had with Samuel de Champlain in uh, 1603. Mm. And they actually warned the French colonist as he was exploring the interior. I think he was going down the St. Lawrence. I can't remember. Everyone was going down the St. Lawrence. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> but they warned him of this creature called the Gugu. Okay. And this was definitely a little bit more of a different interpretation. It is considered a giant hairy beast that lives in the northern forest and is much feared by the Mi'kmaq. So more of a monstrosity, more something to, you know, stay away from again. Right. But again, the Gugu actually has uh, multiple interpretations. It's usually figured as a giant 
female man-eater that can be found in the seas. It's kind of like a serpentine thing. Or it can be found in the mountains, where it's actually often mistaken for a boulder until it's too late. Ooh. So what does that sound like to you? Well, that that last part sounds like the Yeti to me, where it looks like mistaken for a boulder. Mm. I remember watching um, some documentaries and stuff where there'd be like photographs or people thinking like, look up on the ridge over there. And they would see like a, you know, what ended up being a rock formation that looked like a Yeti, like towering over them, like looking down at them. (laughs) That's what that reminds me of. That's really interesting. Another thing that reminds me of Samuel Deschamps. He's associated, of course, with the um, mystery of Champ, the lake monster uh, in uh, Lake Champlain, right? Which is, of course, named after Samuel Mm -hmm. de Champlain because he claimed to have seen it. So this guy's got some uh, interesting connections to some uh, cryptozoological cases for sure. And to be honest, like he didn't, there was no mention of him actually coming across a Gugu, but he was warned of them. Right, and And believed in this stuff. Exactly, and it's very early. So this is 1603, right? Um, people were like, I feel like, actually, I'm not going to comment on that. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, for me, when I heard that whole thing about it's a boulder until it's too late, the fact that these are generally nocturnal creatures as well, reminded me of trolls, even though with trolls, I guess that was kind of their downfall. They turned to stone. Um, again, the watchers was another thing that was brought to mind just because of the giant sort of stature and like the. The yep. rock-like nature of them. Absolutely. Reminds me of like a geodude or something. Definitely. Yeah. That kind of um, brings up the conversation for later on too, whether or not we're talking animal or, you know, something, something a little bit more mm. paranormal related, you know what I mean? Yeah. But obviously this does go just way, way back in history, like even before De Champlain, but here we are up in 1603 and, you know, that's that's pretty significant, especially since I do think the relationship to him believing in Champ too is, is interesting. But <laughs> so yeah, it goes way back. There appears to be a physical difference, though, in the description of the sightings we see in BC compared with the experiences of Sasquatch or Sasquatch-like creatures, if you will, out on the East Coast. So in mm-hmm. Ontario, um, down into northern Michigan and places in Quebec as well. Mm-hmm. Um, differences in fur color, eye color, sometimes glowing yellow, um, mm-hmm. like you mentioned earlier, sometimes black as night. Um, there's an example, a creature referred to historically as Old Yellow Top mm-hmm. has been specifically referenced around and seen around the area of Cobalt, Ontario, and I believe specifically around mines. So um, that's Ooh. a weird connection to hmm. well, connection. I'm just reminded of our goblin series, I know. right? Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, Cobalt is like a mining town in sort of, it's not North Ontario, it's sort of Central Eastern Ontario, I believe. That's interesting. But, oh, another another reference, Cobalt, the Kobolds from German uh, folklore, uh, they were named after the fact that they were found in areas where miners were looking for Cobalt. And cobalt is actually one of those things that's um, really dangerous to harvest, I guess, because right. it's usually surrounded by arsenic or other sort of poisonous things. So Man. that was kind of, again, another sort we of... We always just end up tiptoeing around this grand unified theory <laughs> by accident. I know. Sort of, you know what I mean? Oh, so many connections. Everything's going to happen. Everything. <laughs> Where we need forest here. Yeah. Um, okay. Old Yellowtop. So he's been... Sp- he, <laughs> he, she, it. Old Yeller. Been <laughs> spotted. Old <laughs> Jeez. Um, but I mean, hence the name obviously has uh, a little bit of a blonde hair mm. going on on the tip top, which is interesting because it's a it's a unique characteristic that we don't see in descriptions of Sasquatch on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. But we do see it in interpretations of marked hominids and different creatures elsewhere in the world. But yep. it's just interesting because we do have these differences and then we have differences in how they behave. So we've got violent yes. interactions on both East and West. But we're trying to kind of draw lines between 
these vast territory, like the, the actual distance between these areas is massive. Mm-hmm. So to think that like an East Coast Sasquatch is migrating to the West or vice versa, are these creatures related? Do they know each other exist? Do they you have know, networks like, of relations, right? Do they have, I mean, tra- well, I'm not going to say like trade or anything like that, but like some sort of consciousness would be interesting. And yeah, you could say um, these regional differences are a fact of, or just a product of the fact that this is, like you said, such an expansive, massive land. And that even, I like to go um, sociological with this a little bit, and we'll get into this more with the theories and everything, but you can, you can, like, it's almost like different groups of human beings. It's like different tribes of indigenous people. It's like there there is always going to be differences, whether it is behaviorally or physically, you know what I mean? And that just can be spontaneous, it can be evolutionary, it can be whatever. Absolutely. You know, there's so many different circumstances. Mm-hmm. It sort of seems to be like the the northeast, the Athabasca region, is where there tends to be more violent or aggressive Sasquatch-related experiences, which Athabasca. is kind of interesting. So, Okay, so that, just to reference for everyone that mm-hmm. doesn't know the Athabasca region, that is actually the Canadian Shield region. Right. So it kind of encompasses the areas of like uh, Manitoba, northern... Um, Alberta and Saskatchewan, that kind of neck of the woods, which again, right, is some of the harshest territory, climactically speaking, right? The interior of Canada is harsh. So could you maybe make some argument as to violent tendencies associated with um, scarcity and climactic reasons? Maybe. Possibly. I don't know. Who knows? I I think so. I definitely think so. And Mm -hmm. yeah, and and, and the geography too, the, the terrain. That you're dealing with with those elements as well. Yeah. So it's colder temperature, more or less mountains, depending on where you are, like BC to to the East Coast or whatever. And more or less resources too. Exactly. Um, Yeah. But yeah, many stories of attacks, like vandalized cabins, rocks being thrown, which is a very typical one that we know primates do, right? Um, They throw their own feces, they throw rocks, they throw Mm -hmm. all kinds of different things. So that's definitely a characteristic of an actual animal, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, and this is, but this isn't. This doesn't preclude stories in the West Coast either, though. So we've got Ape Canyon mm-hmm. as a story we're going to touch on tonight as a violent attack that happened in the Washington area. Mm-hmm. This is this is a, a ubiquitous thing, and it's absolutely mm-hmm. bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> so it almost begs the question: Is like, what are we searching for exactly from coast to coast here? Is this phenomena strictly cryptozoological? Is this perhaps something more complex? You know what I mean? As far yeah. as like you're alluding to something more paranormal or <laughs> we like to go interdimensional here. Well, on the gentleman the uh, from Abe Canyon brings that up. He does. Yes. And a lot of people um, kind of, especially in that era of the 1960s and 70s, you kind of get this different interpretation and this amalgamation of the Bigfoot phenomena along with the UFO and alien phenomena. Right. Alien. Sorry. Alia. It's an all new, it's an all new category now. Oh yeah, I know. But anyways, yeah. So. Uh, exactly. Is this something more complex? Just getting back to the basic questions. Um, and again, right, what can account for these variations mm-hmm. in physical descriptions, behavioral descriptions across this massive land of North America? Definitely. And like we said, like after looking at the evidence, initially we posed the question, what makes East East Coast Bigfoot or Sasquatch so much more violent than West Coast sightings, but then we quickly realized that we can't really, that's kind of a fallacy. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not going mm-hmm. with that sort of... Um, sort of mode yeah but yeah it's uh the washington state case is very interesting i can't wait to get into that me too but anyways there was this one distinct group that we did want to mention as far as like you know we're talking about discrepancies we're talking about distinctions and lauren coleman makes this distinction in his book as well as other cryptozoologists in the field like mark a hall yes there is this group known as the marked hominids yeah marked marked i don't know what's interesting about these creatures is that they're they exist mostly in subpolar regions and they've been known or 
been deemed these marked hominids because they have these distinctive characteristics that are different in yeah. many ways to the typical description of a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. Right. Or even other creatures like the Yaren or the Alma of Siberia or right. whatever like that. Actually, there is kind of a funny little reference here we have from Siberia. There's the Alma. Right. So that's kind of the closest equivalent to like the Yeti or like... Um, or Sasquatch, I or guess. Or Sasquatch, like, yeah. yeah. Um, but then there's also one that's called the Mechani. And it does translate roughly to marked one. And it has a white forearm, very similar to Yellowtop. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're kind of referring to. Marked, it means like they have like a mark on them or a spot or like something that kind of like con it like it, it makes them stand out definitely and it, it's it's not it's not something that would indicate like age or something like that where if you would see like a sasquatch that's just like a going slightly gray. different color or going like, gray right yeah, yeah exactly yeah. like this is like like yellow top's got a yellow like b- blonde hair i mean actually if you google yellow top it'll come up as either a cryptozoological creature or donald trump oh, no. <laughs> it's, it's one of those two things <laughs> was that urban dictionary or that was just straight i think it is yeah urban dictionary and it's on wikipedia <laughs> as well oh lord According to research done by Lauren Coleman, these marked hominids are seven foot plus yep. hairy bipedal hominids. But seven foot is roughly around the size of Sasquatch. So like that's a similarity. Yeah. But then we've got these other weird differences. Well, exactly. And the main difference, I guess, would be the multicolored hair patterns, usually two-toned, um, with this like often like a patch or something. And there's usually a distinction appearing on the mane or sometimes on the head. So this is, again, mm. kind of a loose connection to old yellow top. So you right. could, you could um, make the connection like, yeah, it's almost like a pale mane that kind of extends down the back. And then you can almost get an albino skin color on the face. So very much similar to... Uh, uh, what's it called, like a Caucasian person or something yeah. like that. Yeah, or know? kind of like the Orang Pendek because they've oh, got, yeah. they had the more like visible human-like face, whereas other The sas- bone structures, exactly. yeah. And you could tell because it was like lighter, right? Whereas mm-hmm. we have these other descriptions of Sasquatch that are very often like the face was black, the eyes were black, very right. hard to distinguish the features. Right, exactly. Very dark, dark skin tones right. and everything. Um, the origins of this term is actually kind of interesting. It was introduced by Lauren Coleman and a man by the name of Patrick Hugh. Okay. Or is it Hugh or Hugh? Yeah, um, close enough. Hugh. In their book, it was actually called A Field Guide to Bigfoot and Other Mysterious Primates. And so Coleman, we've referred to repeatedly oh, yeah. on the podcast before. He's a very seasoned researcher in the field. Mm-hmm. And he uh, used the term as a tribute to fellow cryptozoologist Mark A. Hall, who, according to Coleman, was the first to identify these creatures as decidedly different from Bigfoot. Interesting. Okay. It's the first. So Mark A. Hall. So we can trace that back to him. That's Crazy. very interesting. So decidedly different from Bigfoot. Why are they different from Bigfoot? We did mention the color, the possibility of the size, but there are other features too. So the skull, it actually rests lower on the body and it makes them appear to have basically no neck. And when I was thinking about that, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't remember which stage of human evolution, you know, there's like homo hominids, homo erectus, homo whatever, sapien or something like that. Um, And there's one I remember that was like very much like that, where it was like no neck. And it was just kind of like jutting forward and just kind of interesting. I would have to go back though. It just popped in my head just now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But anyways, yeah, so they... They have no neck, very large eyes, um, and this is kind of theorized to be part of their nocturnal lifestyle. Okay. Yeah. Um, and obviously the low visibility in nighttime in subarctic regions, right? Because it's a very dark neck of the woods, especially in the winter season. Yeah. And this is interesting too. It says that they do tend to enter nearby towns and villages. And although they are not as intelligent as the natives, this is the quote here, um, they trade with them and communicate 
through gesticulation, so through hand gestures. Yes. And some are even thought to wear clothes and craft tools. Interesting. Hmm. And interestingly enough, they are said to dislike the company of dogs, sometimes even killing them out of frustration. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. That is really interesting. What it's basically like, <clears throat> excuse me, that right there, those differences that he's describing is fundamentally the difference between an animal and a human ancestor, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's kind of like what I'm taking from that. What, like, what do you make of that? Like with, cause when you describe that to me with the short neck and you were just saying like, that reminds you of a very early human. It does. It, it reminds me of what we were looking me, into in Orang Pendex stuff, like going way true, back. And, very true. I always get kind of semi uncomfortable when we start to say like human versus animal, because I think humans are animals and I don't think we need to like, but I know what you're saying, right? Like these markers or traditional markers. And, and also so. just where that divergence happened in history. Oh, if true. we are looking for a relative of Gigantopithecus, which was the largest um, ancestor of um, like the orangutan. I mm-hmm. believe I have to have that like, further down in the notes, but it was basically like a 10 foot tall monkey, right? right. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of cryptozoologists think. Or there's the branch of it that's more towards like Oring Pendek, where right. is, this, is this a remaining relic of an ancient mm-hmm. human population that didn't evolve the way we have? That's like, Yeah, totally. So it's almost like if you're looking at a tree root system or tree branch system, whichever you want to go, where which branch along the way did it kind of right. taper off from or something? Right. That's a good way. That's a good description. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah, so... They're like, like we keep referring to, there's all these differences, varying whatever. But what we really want to get into is sightings and experiences of witnesses. And we're going to go back over the centuries. We already mentioned a couple, but we're just going to try and piece together any parallels, patterns, inconsistencies, all that fun stuff. Oh, yeah. Let's get into it. All right, let's do it. I'm friggin' stoked. Okay. So this is pre 1990s. Uh, 1990s, pre 1900s. <laughs> I'll get up with the 90s, it's, everybody. It's technically pre 1990s. Yeah. Oh, it is pre 1990s. 1824. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this was reported actually in the February 9th edition of the Statesman, and it was also picked up by the Connecticut Sentinel. And I found this referenced in a Mysterious Universe article just for all of our readers at home. This deadly counter with an unknown hairy hominid took place in, like we said, 1824. And this occurred in the Okefenokee Swamp. That's perfect. In the state of Georgia in the U.S. The story begins with two men and a young boy who decided to venture into the swamp to explore. Obviously, this is very early times, and normally when you go into the swamp, bad things happen. We've heard about, what was it, what was it called again? Jack? Stingy Jack? Ooh, yeah. Remember the, the lantern Jack guy? Yeah, from the Halloween episode. Creepy Very mofo. creepy. But anyways, um, so they go into this swamp of the, the Okenafoke. Oh my gosh. Okenafoke. Fenokey. <laughs> Just say swamp. The swamp. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, and they discovered massive footprints. And this was in one of the deepest parts of the swampland. Hmm. Okay. So these prints measured about 18 inches long. And they were about 9 inches wide. So this is a Yikes. wide footprint. Damn. It's almost like... It's like a rectangle. That's almost like, that's wide. That's that's really wide. It's massive. And it's way too big to be known as like any sort of human footprint, even if you're suffering from gigantism, I would imagine. Actually, no, I'm not going to say that. (laughs) I'll say that. I'll say that. Nine inches wide? Come (laughs) on Nine inches wide? That's massive. That's longer than a six inch sub. (laughs) (laughs) And that's... (laughs) 
the width of your foot. <laughs> that reminds me, this, shout, shout out to my cousin Dan, because he's got the widest feet ever. He used to make, not make fun of him, but like, he could swim faster than everybody when we were kids, though, because like, literally his feet were like flippers. But like, Are widest feet I've ever seen, but they're only like five inches, maybe. Like Not even four, a six not, inch. Not even a, su- a sub. <laughs> not not even. Even. I wouldn't eat that. These footprints obviously terrified the trio. And they basically booked it back to their homestead. They didn't want to be around the swamp anymore. And so they reported the prints to their neighbors. And in response, the community kind of rounded up a group of curious hunters. And they kind of assembled themselves with the best of the brightest and made their way back towards the spot. All right, ballsy. Exactly. Um, The kid never accompanied them back, I don't think. One of the trio did, though, because obviously they needed to know where it was. Right. So this is where things got deadly. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. The hunting party made it to the site where the original prints were spotted, and they were actually sighted again. So it wasn't as if they had already disappeared or anything. Um, And so they knew they were in the right area. So they started to make their way deeper into the territory, and they actually stayed in the swamp for several days, is the account. And they were looking for this creature. And so (laughs) little did they know they were in for much more than they could possibly imagine. So one night they were sitting around their campfire, and it had already gone dark when the group was surprised by a massive creature. It was said to stand 13 feet in the air, hulking and covered with coarse hair. And it charged out from the wilderness. Charged. No warning at all. Okay. <laughs> this was the report from the Statesman paper. The next minute, he, the creature, was in their full view, advancing upon them with a terrible look and ferocious mien. Our little band instinctively gathered close in a body and presented their rifles. The huge being, nothing daunted, bounded upon his victims, and in the same instant received the contents of seven rifles. He did not fall alone, nor until he had glutted his wrath with the death of five of them, which he effected by wringing the head from the body. Writhing and exhausted, at length he fell with his hapless prey beneath his grasp. (laughs) Yeah, so um, the story continues on. Um, These terrified hunters, after the collapse of this massive creature, they examined the body only but briefly, overcome by fear that a second one must be lurking nearby. Interesting. Yeah, Hmm. so the body of the beast and the men that were slain by it were left where they fell. The entire group evacuated the area. And uh, this region of the Okanafeki, oh my god, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for everyone living in the area. (laughs) The Swampland, it has retained the lore of these creatures over the centuries. And it's in indigenous memory much longer than the settler memories. But yeah, again, you you get sightings and accounts over the years and even into modern times. Doesn't really get much more violent than um, tearing the heads off of its victims. That is essentially... Ringing it right off. Ringing them, yeah. Mm -hmm. Twisting them right off like you're taking the cork out of a bottle or something. Like, that's... That... I don't even know what that is. That doesn't necessarily um, strike me as being like a... I mean, a territorial thing necessarily. Mm -hmm. Like, that's... That is the actions of... um, of something that is a branch of human, right? That mm-hmm. is almost has like sociopathic tendencies. Like that isn't just defending your territory. You know what I mean? Even though like even though chimpanzees will like rip rip other chimps limb from limb mm-hmm. or or things Cannibalize like that. Cannibalize them. Mm-hmm. So definitely, I, I guess maybe I the take thing, that back. There could be some. Hmm, I don't yeah, know. the thing that I will add just to that is um, this is obviously a really old account. Yeah. 
there are many ways, like yellow journalism, yellow newspaper, whatever. Like, you know, like a lot of this stuff could have been played up. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to discount it, though. I think this is a very unique unique story even if it is just folklore in and of itself Mm -hmm. but um yeah i don't know just the fact that these men obviously didn't know what they were dealing with and they could have angered it unintentionally they could have just angered it by literally being right next to its little cave or what not cave like you know like those little structures they like to build yeah (laughs) that's right yeah we find it could have been just right in the way you know what i mean and so uh, and yeah, it was just such a temporary campsite too. That leads me to believe that they could have just really wandered right into its lair, so to speak. Right. And then maybe it just came back for the night and sees like this commotion, smells all these smells, hears all these people. And it's just like, screw all you, yeah. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and we didn't actually write this into the notes, but that brings up the idea of like the skunk ape, which oh, is like yes. this, the, one of the, uh, I believe like the Florida, you know, the Florida swamplands and other sort of areas of the East coast. Exactly. Actually, I did just look up a, a Georgia borders, South Carolina and Alabama and go. Florida. So you were right. Alabama there you and go. Florida. There you go. So, there you so go. It's, it very much could be the same a similar creature. And of course the skunk ape is known to stink, <laughs> hence the name, right? Mm-hmm. It's got this foul odor of a, of a monster essentially. And I guess that makes sense. Like living in a swamp, um, attacking things in a swamp, it's nothing but decay. So I guess that kind of makes sense. This story is interesting too. The one you just, you, you just read out mm-hmm. because the bodies and any of the evidence, like things are quickly swallowed up and disappear in oh, swamplands, right? Mm-hmm. They're well-preserved yeah, quite like often when you do find them. But they're hard to find. <laughs> that would be so amazing. Imagine they found a bog body of a Sasquatch. Like per- perfectly preserved. Like mummified kind of. Yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> 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 that reminds me of like Murdoch mysteries for some reason. When they're always poking around in the water looking for bodies. Oh, God, let's go dude. find a Sasquatch body. <laughs> okay, let's jump ahead here. Um, <coughs> about 40 years, 40, 50 years um, to 1869. So we're still in the 1800s. And there was another report that read literally gorilla in Ohio. (laughs) Now, again, we're jumping all over the map here in terms Mm -hmm. of these Sasquatch Bigfoot hominid light creatures. And Ohio has its own, um, known as the Grassman. And of course, the Grassman deserves its own episode and same with the Skunk Ape and all these ones. And this series is to try to tie things together. And that's why we wanted to do these attacks. Bigger picture. Bigger Mm -hmm. picture stuff. But... Interesting, though. Gorilla in Ohio. So 1869 could have been a year when there was definitely traveling circuses. There were other just exhibits and things like that. People bringing back exotic animals from Africa, selling them to rich people, Mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. But this one's this is an interesting story. So. Gallipolis, Ohio, on the Ohio River. I think he's River. in Gallipoli. I don't know, though. Or Gallipoli. Maybe. Gallipoli? That, isn't that a movie? That's a movie about Australian soldiers in the First World War, I'm pretty sure. Is it? Starring Mel Gibson, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, a large hominid was said to be lurking in the forest, though, in, in by the nearby town. Mm-hmm. And allegedly attacked a carriage with a father and daughter traveling along the road. The pair struggled with the creature when it basically leapt out of the bush and just... I mean, as far as the story goes, it's pretty vague. We don't know if they if he grabbed them out of the carriage or if the carriage was just halted and they, they exited almost like in fear trying to flee. That's a good point, actually. I kind of read that I think the monster grabbed onto the man. And right. there was no description as to whether or not he was flung from the carriage. But again, right, the daughter was said to fling a stone at its head, so she must have been outside of the carriage, right? You don't bring a stone inside of a carriage with you. No, unless you have a pet rock. I don't think the pet rock was a thing yet in 1869. <laughs> Maybe. Um, it may have Simpler been. Simpler times. <laughs> yeah. What was that from again? Oh, from Office Space. The pet rock? 
<laughs> he made a million dollars. That's the worst idea I've ever <laughs> Okay. But very odd, though, because it's like, whether it's a Sasquatch, a marked hominid, a escaped gorilla from a zoo, mm-hmm. or a, a traveling circus, this story alleges that this hairy beast lunges at the carriage, attacks mm-hmm. the man, the daughter throws a rock at it in an attempt to get it to flee, and it does. So it's hit with the rock and it runs off into the woods. Yeah. And then very, very close after this, a similar creature was reported and on a similar river the same mm. year, prompting the papers Ooh. to sort of fly away with this idea of the, the North Osage American river. Yeah, gorilla. the Osage River's in Ohio. Okay, perfect. Mm. So, so the same area. So the same mm. idea of the stories of the early grass man stories, right? But this is the weird thing. I, I, we put this in quotes. The North American gorilla craze. It wasn't the Sasquatch. It was, it's not Bigfoot yet. Right. It's not Ooh, actually sorry. It's in Missouri. <laughs> it's not in Ohio. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fact checking. But the point is that it's referenced as gorilla. We've got gorilla in Ohio, and then we've got this other report: North American gorilla craze is the mm-hmm. headline. We're not at this point where it's being associated with like indigenous oral histories of mar- of hairy hominid creatures. Mm-hmm. It's just we're like you said, we're in this era of yellow journalism, and this could may or may not be true. But it's also an era where it's sensationalism in the sense that, like, it was more sensational for them to think that a gorilla escaped from a traveling circus than to actually look into the history and be like, wait a second, people have been talking about these things for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Totally. It's not necessarily a gorilla escape from the zoo. No, no. And wasn't the whole gorilla specifically, like, um, spawned from that book that that guy um, he like published it a few years before 19 or sorry, 1869. Remember it was like some guy, I can't remember if he was French. I, uh, the name is eluding me right now, but you referenced him a few days ago. Yeah. Oh man. And he essentially went to, he had like a six year expedition in Africa, lived with gorillas, came back, wrote a book, published it. It was sensational. It. Yep. it was crazy. And yep. and then since that moment on many Bigfoot or Sasquatch quote unquote encounters were described as gorillas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a, the perfect example of just how easy people can be told what they're seeing mm-hmm. in a sense, right? It's similar to like the Michele Mbembe where there's these reports coming in and then a missionary goes and says, here's a, here's a sauropod. Is this what you're seeing? And they say, yes, that's what I'm mm, seeing. You yeah. show some people a picture of a gorilla. That's what I'm seeing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like exactly. that's their only point of reference at that point. Exactly. So it kind of makes sense. But yeah, uh, the follow, the following was then taken. From, I've got, okay, we're heading back up North. Let's cross the border back into Canada. <laughs> so I've got some really interesting news, newspaper articles from quite a wide period, but starting in 1923. So just another short period after this late 1800s and these sightings we've referenced so far. But these ones are specific to old Yellowtop. Yeah. So we're kind of heading back into marked hominid territory, and we're not sure what we're dealing with really here. Mm-hmm. But I love this. These are from a paper called the North Bay Nugget, um, <laughs> starting from uh, 1923. So this first one came published July 27th. And it's talking about a sighting by a Mr. J.A. McCauley and Mr. Lorna Wilson. And they claim to have seen what they described as a pre-Cambrian shield man. Ooh. Okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> so we're not, we're not heading into gorilla or Bigfoot territory here on this mm-hmm. one. A pre-Cambrian shield man while working on their mine. Well, while working at the mine. They claim mm-hmm. to... Or sorry. sorry. Mm. It's their claim. Like a mining right. claim. Right. Mm-hmm. Near the town of... Weddlefur, and this is again near Cobalt, Ontario. Mm. So this is the second time in 17 years that a hairy ape-like creature nicknamed Old Yellow Top because of the light-colored mane has been seen in the district, and that's a quote directly from the paper. The two prospectors said 
They were taking test samples from their claim property when they spotted what looked like a bear picking in a blueberry patch. <laughs> Mr. Wilson said he threw a stone at the creature. He then said it kind of stood up and growled at us, then ran away on two legs. It sure was like no bear I have ever seen. Its head was kind of yellow, and the rest of it was black, like a bear, all covered in hair. The first report of the creature was made in September of 1906 by a group of men building the head frame of the Violet Mine east of Cobalt, and it has not been seen since that time. But, a few decades later, it crops up again. So, the North Bay Nugget, again, on April 17th of 1947, references Old Yellowtop. So, again... Right near Cobalt. Here's the quote. Hmm. Old Yellowtop, the half-man, half-beast that is supposed to be roaming the wilds around the Cobalt mining camp, was supposedly seen again by a woman and her son who lived near Gilles, the Giles Depot. Giles, <laughs> Gillies. 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 Gillian. <laughs> <laughs> while they were walking... Okay, so a woman and her son who, who lived near the Giles Depot while they were walking the tracks into Cobalt. The woman, who did not want her name to be made public, said she noticed a dark, hairy animal with a light head ambling off the tracks into the bush near the lake. Hmm. She said she did not get a clear look at the thing, but said it walked very much like a man. The sighting is the third such report to be made since 1906 or 1947, and a search party was actually formed after this sighting to try to track down Old Yellowtop. Okay, we're jumping ahead here again because this is where another reference to Old Yellowtop could be associated with some other violent type mm-hmm. experiences. Mm-hmm. So skipping ahead to August 5th, 1970, right in and around the same area, there was, you could describe it as violent, but, or just, I don't even know, mischievous, I would say, experience. Mm-hmm. A busload of mine workers were almost sent down a ravine when a massive creature standing over seven feet tall walked out deliberately in front of their vehicle. The bus driver named Amos uh, Latriel, who who had been driving the route for the last four months, said a dark form which walked out across the road in front of him startled him. At first, I thought it was a big bear, but then it turned to face the headlights, and I could see some light hair almost down to its shoulders. <laughs> it's got like a big blonde wig on or something. <laughs> um, it couldn't have been a bear, he said. Although no one was hurt, the driver said that he did not know if he would continue to drive the bus. I have heard of this thing before, but never believed it. Now I'm not so sure. <laughs> so they, they thought that this thing didn't want them to be go- heading where they were heading. Okay. And that it basically jumped in front, like, either it was trying to kill itself by jumping in front of oncoming traffic, mm-hmm. or it's stepping in front to divert where it's going, and it did. It sent it down a ravine, and all these guys could have died. Or it's just walking across the street, classic quail uh, <laughs> behavior, where they wait until there's something coming, and then just walk across <laughs> for no reason. So whether or not he was cogn- cognizant of the bus or not, that is very interesting. But... At the flip side. So it didn't go down the ravine. Did he just like lurch to a stop kind of thing? No, it, uh, like it kind of went down into like a ditch and yeah, he, like they luckily didn't go down the ravine. Okay. I don't know how the exact territory looked, but he thought it was deliberate. Um, and the report that I was looking at, uh, you know, Hmm. and the other ones we mentioned earlier, they weren't violent. They were just sightings, but we're kind of building almost a case here with some of the other ones we've referenced and that we will in a minute Mm -hmm. that, 
there's territoriality for sure that comes up with these cases. Yes, there is some type of parallel going on there. I like these sightings though. This <laughs> North Bay Nugget. The North Bay Nugget. The yeah. North Bay Nugget. I like that description too. The Precambrian Shield Man. Like that is. <clears throat> That sounds like a very intelligent way to describe what they were seeing. They didn't say a caveman. They didn't say like a, you know what I mean? Like something that's like a, like a bushman or whatever, like a wild man. They you have to wonder like if that. they did say that and that the writer interpreted it as that. True. Pre- yeah. Pre-Cambrian shield man. Or yeah, there yeah, could have been whatever. Because these are not minors. It's not like they're like academics or anything. Or Well, but I mean, you know, they might have interests and other very things. True. You never know. Worldly interests. Right. I mean, mm. it's the 19, this was in the 1970s, I guess, in this mm. one. But, but again, right, anyway. not violent. These are just sightings. And this next classic Sasquatch tale is almost going to draw all of these elements together because it starts yeah. off with very, um, you know, very I don't know, congenial, I guess, very uh, non-violent, non-confrontary um, sightings. And then it moves into something that is like, has become literally probably one of the most referenced uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot I would say encounters so. in, in the literature. Definitely. But before we do that, we're going to get into um, just a little break, a little coffee break brought to you by Coffee Gator. That's right. <laughs> Are you a coffee fiend like us? Then Coffee Gator is about to become your new best friend. Coffee Gator is creating products that are simple to use, made of quality materials, and have a beautiful aesthetic. Oh my god, that pink series is amazing! (laughs) It really is, but of course there is something for everyone. Coffee Gator will up your coffee game whether you are an instant coffee fan or an espresso addict. Seriously, they've got every accessory under the sun. From stainless steel canisters, pour-over systems cold brew coffee making kits, and insulated glass mugs. They have the tools you need to make your best cup yet, including helpful tips and tricks on their website. So simply use promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K, to get 15% off your purchase at coffeegator.com. That's 15% off your purchase using promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K, at checkout. So visit coffeegator.com today. Start drinking better coffee with Coffee Gator. All right, and we're back. So let's get into the Ape Canyon incident. That's right. 1924, when Bigfoot attacks. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But anyways, yeah, this actually occurred in the Mount St. Helens area of Washington along the Lewis River. And this is approximately eight miles away from Spirit Lake in an area now referred to as Ape Canyon. Right. Spirit Lake has a lot of significance in indigenous folklore. It um, is kind of known as like a hotbed for these supposed apes, or um, they're also referred to as mountain devils in some people. Oh, I like that. I love it too. But anyways, okay, so this experience was witnessed by five individuals, and they were prospectors. Their names were Marion Smith, his son, Roy Smith, Fred Beck, who is a key player in all this, a man named uh, Gabe Lefevre, and then John Peterson. And this group had been working a claim in the area since 1918, so they're well familiar with it. It's not as if they had just shown up one day and then this all occurred. Yeah. And they essentially had been working this with, I don't know, like minimal disturbances until, until in 1924, they came across some unusual tracks. And again, these were much too large to be human, but they were uncannily human-like in right. their appearance. And this was a quote. Um, Embedded into the earth was a series of p- footprints recorded as 
very human-like but much more massive, around 14 inches in length and with unusually stubby toes, end hmm. quote. So the stubby toes and the number of toes and the length of the footprint will come We'll come back to in a second yeah. here. But anyways, after this initial sighting of these footprints, um, these prospectors began to actually see creatures. Um, okay. And okay. these were witnessed on at least four separate occasions. And they were described as large, upright creatures that were dark, hairy, and about seven feet tall. All right. Yes. And okay, this is a weird part, again, that I saw referenced in a Mysterious Universe report. And this was not mentioned by Lauren Coleman at all. But this article said that the most unusual part was a description of a pair of four-inch long ears that stood upright on the creature's head. So I don't know where the heck that fits in. I don't know if that's just that like... That sounds a, like a bear. <laughs> doesn't it like doesn't like when you yeah. when you hear that when it's like, like yeah the big long yeah so anyways that kind of takes away from it for me but this again like i said was never mentioned by lauren coleman's account was never mentioned as far as i'm aware in the later version published by fred beck who was a witness right and so i'm not sure where that fits in but hmm. i was just like what the frick like okay fine just throw a wrench in it but Don't okay doubt. no kidding hey that is a wrench isn't it anyways so <laughs> provoking the creature okay mm. so you know these guys started to get a little bit uneasy about all of these large things that they were seeing in the woods no doubt and it's not as if they were really getting messed with or anything like how we hear in some accounts where it's like a bigfoot will steal your food or something or it'll you know what i mean like yeah that almost sounds like a bear to me too like <laughs> quick to write that off but i'm thinking of the Albert, Albert, Austin Albert Austin kept waking yeah. up and his uh, supplies were missing. Exactly. And we'll reference him in later parts of this series. Definitely, yeah. Astonishing Legends did a great episode on that. I yeah, love that. <laughs> totally. So these guys, again, like they're getting uneasy and they started to try and scare these creatures off. And so they started using their guns to kind of shoot at them, to spook them. Right. Not trying to kill them, just trying to spook them away. Exactly. And uh, initially this didn't really seem to have any effect and this is where the story gets murky. All right. So one report says on July 10th, Fred Beck sighted a creature. It was standing on the edge of the canyon and he shot and presumably killed it as it stood on the edge of the ridge. It staggered and plummeted to the depths below. This okay. was again reported in the Mysterious Universe article um, and is reported in other sources as well. But... There is discrepancies, and we'll get into that in a sec. But anyways, all right. So it seems that after after this Bigfoot was killed, or Sasquatch, whatever you want to call him, it seemed that their troubles were over until later that evening when they had an encounter that would stay with them, petrified into their memory for the rest of their lives. Okay. All right, so there's the story. The night had grown long, and the prospectors had settled into their spots for the evening in a quaint little cabin they had constructed for the duration of their stay. This cabin was very, fairly new. They had just used tents beforehand, and it didn't even have window panes, so it was very, very rustic. Right. And the fire had just dwindled down, and it was quite late in the evening when the action began, so deep into the night. Suddenly, the cabin shook with a powerful and urgent pounding on the roof. The startled men grabbed for their guns as the assault ramped up with rocks, and it, these were pelted from all sides, and one apparently knocked Fred back unconscious as it flew straight through the open window. 
Wow. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I will just say right now that there is this other other part that Coleman mentions in his book. Okay. And he says that in Fred Beck's later account that was published in the 1960s, I believe it was 1966 or 67, he insisted that um, no one in the party fired on the creatures until they attacked the cabin. And so it was like this self-defense sort of modus operandi thing. So they were essentially waiting for these creatures to close in on them. Okay, so that's like mm-hmm. the difference between them retaliating for a creature being shot beforehand, essentially, is what you're saying. Well, like with Beck shooting a creature on the cliff? Exactly. Okay, so again, <laughs> in the 1966 version, Fred Beck insists that the creature that he shot occurred the morning after this attack happened. And so that, again... <sighs> convolutes things as far as the reason for the attack yep, in the first place is this re- retaliation for a death or is this a random territorial thing and then in the end at the end of the account do they shoot one of them like you know what i mean so it's either at the beginning or at the end but we'll get into that in a sec yeah i mean according to like the news stories at that time like not later on but at the time there were dozens of creatures prowling around the outside of the cabin right mm-hmm. so that to me seems like the story should have been in terms of it making sense in my mind that they he shot a creature beforehand and this is a retaliation because yeah. they're in, they're in their territory you've you've killed one of their group their own, right yeah. mm-hmm. um that makes sense it does it, um it doesn't make sense to me to be still chilling around the next morning oh it's a beautiful sunny day hey there's a there's one of those things that was trying to kill us last night i'm just going <laughs> to give that a little shot and then we'll mosey on home you'd be out of there first sun as soon as the sun was up yeah. you wouldn't be firing at anything like, that's ballsy. You just got pelted with rocks by mm-hmm. by apparently 12-plus massive seven-foot-tall hominid creatures all night long. Yeah. And then the first thing you do the next day is go piss them off? <laughs> yeah. That's crazy sauce. No, I know. And that, to me, again, is, is, is confusing because Lauren Coleman has a tough time with this case. He really gets into the fact that Fred Beck really muddled things up, especially him and his son, who co-published the later um, version. And he thinks that it might have something to do with Fred's aging mind and his son's inferences into the story, as well as the sort of cultural zeitgeist of the time, which was very much more um, of this, like, it was making a lot more connections between, like, not psychic phenomena, like, you know, like paranormal phenomena and Bigfoot. So it's less cryptozoological. And I will try and find here, I've got the book in front of me, but, um, we can keep going. Yeah, for sure. Story. I mean, okay. Again, like just to, just to reiterate on some of the discrepancies here, it says here, I think this was from Coleman's book too, that the men scrambled out of the area as soon as the action died off. Like le- yeah. leaving behind their valuable prospecting exactly. equipment so in their hasty me. retreat. If you're hastily retreating, you're not taking the time for some target practice in at sunup, mm-hmm. like where where there's one thing standing lurking over you on the hill. I don't, I don't know. That that doesn't really add up to me. There's other later inconsistencies too. It sort of seems that they would morph into varying versions. Mm-hmm, definitely. Okay, so this is interesting here. I have the chapter from Lauren Coleman pulled up. Let's just take a quick reading from here. And uh, again, this is the version. It's called I Fought an Eight Man of Mount St. Helens. And it was a booklet <laughs> based on Beck's own account um, of the of the sighting and the, the encounter. Okay. And it was, co- like I said, co-written by his son and him. And again, this is like 40 plus years later. So 1924 to 1966. It's a long time. Yes. So it says here, um, 
Beginning in 1918, Fred Beck and his partners, Marion Smith and his son, Roy Smith, Gabe Lafayette, and John Peterson, began prospecting for gold in the Mount St. Helens and Lewis River area of South Washington, southwestern Washington. Before they built a cabin, they lived in a tent below the mountain they called Plumy Butt. Nearby, a creek flowed, and along it there was a moist sandbar, about an acre in size, where the prospectors would wash their dishes and get drinking water. Early one morning, in about 1922... 1922. Okay, so that's earlier. Okay. One of them came running back to the camp and urged his fellows to follow him back to the creek, where he showed them two large, somewhat human-like tracks sunk four inches deep into the center of the sandbar. No other tracks were nearby. Because the nearest spot it could possibly have jumped to was 160 feet away, the men reasoned that the creature had a huge stride, or something had dropped from the sky and went back up. Okay. As time passed, the miners came across similar tracks, which they could not identify. The largest of them was 19 inches long. In brackets, the original 1924 articles, however, as noted above, the miners mentioned much smaller footprints of about 14 inches. Right. As they built their cabin, uh, Beck and the four other miners working the gold claim, um, the Vander White, named after their spirit guide, and that's what they called it. The Vander White was their gold claim. Okay. Um, so they would hear strange thudding, hollow thumping noises in broad daylight. They could not find the cause, although they suspected that one of their number might be playing tricks on them. That proved not to be the case, since even when the group was gathered together, the sounds continued all around them. They thought it sounded as if there were a hollow drum in the earth somewhere, and something is hitting it. Okay. I These love were not that. <laughs> exactly. These were not the last strange sounds they would hear. Early in July, 1924. Okay, so now we're in 1924. A shrill whistling, apparently emanating from atop a ridge, pierced the evening quiet. An answering whistle came from another ridge. Ooh. These sounds, along with the booming thumping, as if something were pounding its chest, continued every evening for a week. Now thoroughly unnerved, the men had taken to carrying their rifles with them wherever they went. Beck and a man identified only in his booklet as Hank to avoid embarrassment to his family, which is actually Marion Smith. Okay. Um, they were drawing water from the spring when suddenly Hank yelled and raised his gun. Beck looked up and saw on the other side of the canyon a seven-foot ape-like creature standing next to a pine tree. The creature, a hundred yards away from the two men, dodged behind a tree. When it poked its head around the tree, Hank fired three quick shots, spraying bark, but apparently not hitting the creature, which momentarily disappeared from sight. It reappeared about 200 yards down the canyon. This time, Beck got off three shots before it was gone. All right, so then it goes on to describe the, the actual attack, which is a couple pages. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Yeah. But that's interesting, right? So that accounts for them having an interaction that's semi-violent, right? Like shooting at it. So, you know, like threatening it right and then this is the night that the attack goes down and so exactly the creatures pelted the cabin with rocks like we said um beck this is where we get the quote where beck said they should fire on the creatures only if they physically attacked the cabin this would show that the miners were only defending themselves which is kind of weird right if a wild animal's going after you think in the 1920s right? i mean come on you can kill anything in the 1920s and get away with it basically mm-hmm yeah, so it says here it lasted all night, punctuated by brief, quiet interludes. At one point, a creature reached through the chinking space and grabbed an axe by the handle, and Beck lunged forward, snatched the blade, and turned the axe upright so the ape couldn't get it out. 
And then as he was doing so, a bullet from Hank's rifle narrowly missed his hand. <laughs> and then it says the creature withdrew its arm and retreated. So, okay. So once the attack ends just before daybreak, they cautiously stepped outside with their guns in hand. That's when Beck supposedly got the shot off on one of the creatures. Okay. It says, taking careful aim, he shot three times and watched as it toppled off the cliff and fell down into the gorge about 400 feet below. Must have been some bright moonlight. Yeah. Yeah, it says here they told a forest ranger about the experience um, at Spirit Lake. So they left They left through $200 in supplies and equipment behind, never returned to claim it. <laughs> 200 bucks back in the day, man. <laughs> That's a good chunk of change. It is, yeah. But it's very interesting because Beck would go on to describe this as a very spiritual experience. And he actually says, quote, They are not entirely of this world. I was, for one, always conscious that we were dealing with supernatural beings, and I know the other members of the party felt the same. He says um, he believes the creatures now known as Sasquatch or Bigfoot come from another dimension and are a link between human and animal consciousness. (laughs) They are composed of the substance that ranges beyond the physical and psychical, sometimes one more than the other, depending on the degree of materialization. Fascinating. I know. Got some I Skinwalker Ranch type stuff yes, right there. Totally. So once again, we're coming back around to this mm-hmm. uh, the very thing that I've criticized so many times in the past, but the grand unified theory. I know, right? Um, Skinwalker is a great example of that, right? Yeah, it is. And like you mentioned, like, okay, so the inconsistencies with the story gets back to like, okay, so the size of the footprint so goes from like 14 inches to a staggering 19. Yep. The timing of the shooting went from before the assault to the morning after. But again, right, this. <sighs> could be discrepancies in reporting, but the, the articles that came out in 1924 did describe the shooting occurring before. Yes. And so, and then where the creature was shot and how it was affected, there was the idea of three shots versus one, um, shot in the head versus in the chest, a lot of different things. Um, the other interesting yeah. thing about this is like, there was no description of any attempt to retrieve the body. Yeah. Right? Well, it tumbled um, about 400 meters into a gorge. Right. But I mean, like, you'd think that someone might go back and try to, confirm that it was actually there take um, a hand to to, take a, take to, an ear. to prove that there's something something right toe. Uh, yeah like the classic oh. yeti hand that's supposedly in nepal or whatever exactly. right like take something but the other interesting thing about that is if someone did go back to look for it and it wasn't there mm-hmm. even if we don't have that information perhaps the body was collected by its own right oh, and, yeah. that, and that's a thing that we come back to all the time with sasquatch mm-hmm. we never find a body why is that Perhaps they bury their dead. Well, if you talk to Fred back, apparently they're more um, psychical than (laughs) maybe they just fade. It's almost like in the Santa Claus. When when Santa Claus dies, he just disappears. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got Santa Claus, Sasquatch, Mark Tominids. It's all connected. (laughs) Oh, and one other discrepancy, too, is the fact that in the 1924 reports, there was four toes initially sighted in the footprint, and then that changed into five. Hmm. Later on. And, yeah, I sounds. do have, uh, and again, I want to say this too. The difference between 14 to 19, the difference between a nine inch wide foot and like a four inch wide foot can potentially be accounted for, for with, with sliding, right? Oh, yeah. um, if these footprints are on a slope, they are most likely going to appear to be bigger than they actually are. Mm-hmm. We came across that in the Orang Pendek episode where there was evidence of footprints walking down a path and then a handprint on a tree bracing itself as it was coming down a hill and those footprints were elongated, right? Because right. it's stepping and sliding down. Mm-hmm. So that's where bear tracks can be super misleading for big, uh, Sasquatch researchers. Right. You see a bear coming down a hill, you've got this almost five-toed kind of splayed deal going on mm-hmm. here and depending what they're stepping into, it can look very hominid-like. Oh, that's a really good point. You know, it's another just, this is a side note for sure, but um, 
<laughs> Coleman mentions how in his later years, just before he published his book, I believe, in the 1960s, um, he was interviewed by Roger Patterson. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And so Patterson, obviously, of the Everyone fame knows of that, right? Patterson and Gimlin's footage of Bigfoot from the, was it 1970s? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, was it 59? Or six, it was in the fifties or sixties. I, I believe it was fifty nine. Anyways, I can't. I can't. Let's pull. It, we can pull that. it up in a minute. Yeah, but essentially, um, a lot of people credit this conversation to sparking Patterson's interest in the Bigfoot phenomena. And this interview was actually published in a nineteen sixty six book by Patterson called "Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist?" So I thought that was kind of interesting. Very cool. Another sort of side note too is this whole Siatik. Um, uh, the native interpretation of these apes in Ape Canyon, supposedly? Yeah, so the indigenous populations in the area of Ape Canyon, Washington, they describe how this encounter was most likely, yeah, like you say, this creature they call Sihatik. That mm. reminds me of Nahatiko with, uh, yeah. with um, Ogopogo, Ogopogo in similar pronunciation. But a legendary, here's the kicker, a legendary race of seven to eight foot hairy hominids that supposedly have supernatural power. And I have a quote here. Um, According to these tribal sources, members of this lost tribe were typically shy and hardly ever seen, but would exact great vengeance on anyone who killed one of their own. Mm -hmm. Well, don't we, uh, doesn't that ring a bell with the situation we're talking about right now? Well, exactly. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that this is a very, very important part of the puzzle for me and we're going to get more um on this when we get into our theory section because there's several sort of um regional interpretations of this siatik uh, character and i think it's juicy stuff so anyways um more on that but let's get back into the sightings here or encounters i guess there was one in the same area it was from 1950 and this is just called missing and presumed dead by mountain devils um, and this guy named Jim Carter was a mountaineer and skier, and he was hiking in the area of Ape Canyon. So this is again Mount St. Helens okay. region, and he was with twenty other people. And this is midday, so this is bright daylight, not bad weather, nothing really going on. Um, and he just suddenly disappeared. And <laughs> so yeah, like I said, there was no visible signs or natural causes of distress that like searchers could see that would have caused him to flee or disappear like something like say like a rock side or slide sorry or an animal or something like that sure something typical yeah but um they did assemble a search party obviously and they actually found what was described as a scattered trail of trauma it appeared that carter had taken off in haste even quote careening down steep embankments and hurtling recklessly across crevices. Okay. So why the heck would you be doing that unless something was chasing you? And one thing that I, a question I have is, well, where were the footprints of whatever was chasing him, right? Right. So searchers got really spooked when they were combing this area. Many commented that it felt like there was something watching them. There was eyes on the back of their heads kind of thing. Right. And there was this one, one guy, uh, Bob Lee, of the Seattle Mountain Search and Rescue, and he made the following statement. It was the most eerie experience I've ever had. There was something strange on the high slopes of the mountain. I could feel the hair on my neck standing up. It was eerie. I was unarmed except for my ice axe. And believe me, I never let go of that. 
Carter's complete disappearance is an unsolved mystery to this day. Dr. Otto Trott, Lee Stark, and I finally came to the conclusion that the mountain devils got him. Again, that the mountain devils description. I know, right? I mean, that's, I almost feel like that should be, I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's the go-to description for this episode, for sure. Mountain Devils. Um, I know, right? And this wasn't the first time that Lee had actually encountered um, a similar case such as this. He actually went on to say um, <laughs> he was dead serious when he said that the Mountain Devils got Carter because he claims that there was actually close to 25 reports of these Mountain Devils harassing or attacking people in the area of Mount St. Helens over a period of 20 years. And this actually included a pack of Boy Scouts from Centralia. (laughs) Centralia? I don't know where that is. Um, And they were actually unharmed but scared out of their wits after being charged by one of the ferocious beasts. Wow. Yeah, I know. a ton of these experiences. Mm-hmm. So that lends some credence to obviously the original Ape Canyon attack, although yeah. even though Beck's later accounts are a little uh, hairy fairy. Mm-hmm. You know what's funny too, just another quick side note, this whole Boy Scouts thing, um, if you go to Ape Canyon, Lauren Coleman mentions how if you go to this specific site, I can't remember, it's just like some whatever, like uh, information site or something, and mm-hmm. if you ask the people why it's called Ape Canyon, they'll tell you it's because of, or it's called Mound Devils, I can't remember. They said this has to do with the uh, some sort of memory of the Boy Scouts. It's like named after them or something. But, oh, okay. But not everyone will tell you the story of the 1924 Eight Canyon, which is what the team of the Boy Scouts was named after originally. Is what he says in his book, at least. Hmm. But anyways, yeah. Side note: pop culture reference. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really cool. That makes me really want to go camping at Eight Canyon. It's not really pop culture. What am I trying to say? It's just a. <laughs> Just a cultural reference. <laughs> no, it's a no. It's pop culture. Is Sasquatch it? is in the zeitgeist of pop culture. I think, like in terms yeah. of because it's, I mean, yeah, it depends on who you're talking to, right? In terms of how serious the conversations are, I feel like mm-hmm. we're trying to make it a little bit more serious for sure. <laughs> the violence definitely continues on um, beyond the 1950s, and um, obviously, Bigfoot launched into the public consciousness because of the Patterson-Gimlin film that we just mm-hmm. referenced. Um, no violence related in that film, obviously. No. Just just the straight sighting of what appeared to be, of course, a female mm-hmm. Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Um, probably a little bit older because it appeared to be like that it had like pendulous breasts, if I'm mm-hmm. to reference uh, Bob's Burgers. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so... Anyway, really interesting. But the violence would continue. 1965, we're heading back to the East Coast. So Monroe County, Michigan. Now, this is heading back into the territory where we're dealing with potentially marked hominids spotted all over these subpolar regions in the East Coast of Canada and and northern uh, United States. This was the summer, though. So in 1965, there was a 17-year-old girl by the name of Christina Van Acker. She was driving home one evening with her mother. We're not actually sure if she was driving um, or if her mother was driving or where they were coming from. Mm. But as they drove, they reported what was a loud thud um, that reverberated throughout the car and shook the vehicle. Um, thinking that they had hit an animal or a person, um, they stopped the car, pulled over to the side of the road, and then according to the report, Christina rolled the window down before, like, just to kind of poke out and see before mm-hmm. actually exiting the vehicle, only to have a massive arm covered in black hair reach through the window, grab her on the head, mm-hmm. and then smash it against the car door so hard that she was rendered unconscious, <laughs> knocked her out. Jeez. Her mom screamed, like, just shrill screaming, obviously, in just sheer terror and panic. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this was significantly high-pitched because this sent whatever this creature was apparently running back into the woods, completely <laughs> startled. Um, 
I, I can I can probably attest to that. I think if that was me and my mom in the car, she would probably scare scare uh, a Sasquatch away. Yeah, Wendy a, would probably a, a scare scared a Sasquatch or away. any sort of mother that has their offspring uh, threatened. I believe would have a reaction that is so primeval that anything would be scared by it. Which is a sen- <laughs> which very much could be a similar situation with these Sasquatch attacks. Mm-hmm. Like just like you see with a, a mother, you see a cub. Yep. There's a mother bear nearby, and you should probably leave. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, what do you make of that? That's effing crazy. <laughs> the the mother... Actually, oh, sorry, continue. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say it ties in really nicely with this next sighting um, that I actually got from Matru. It was a really cool... Oh, okay. Um, well, from good. South Dakota, though. So this is... Where was that again that we were just uh, in? That was in Michigan. Oh, Michigan. Okay. So we're kind of skipping back down south here. Mm-hmm. But same kind of... It's almost like a parallel a little bit. Definitely. Um, but this one... Did you have anything else you wanted to comment on before well, we move on? I guess, like, just the only other thing was that the mother claimed that it growled like a mad dog. So hmm. I, we, we've we had some similar descriptions in terms of it, like... But usually it's, like, a howl, though, or it's, like, some sort of... Like, not a growl like a dog. Like, that implies more of yeah. a... More of a beast than a hominid. Well, even with the Ape Canyon, there was, like, whistling sounds. Whistling, and, right. Yeah. yeah. And then chest beating and all right. that much more ape-like and then when you get into things like wood knocking and other communications like that like that's very very much like you know yeah apes hominids those types of things growling like a mad dog is like a monster yeah so anyway that's just kind of interesting uh, yeah i mean sasquatches growl of there's course. definitely guttural sounds i growl <laughs> yeah, you do i have been known to growl so i can see these things <laughs> growling once in a while too mm-hmm. especially if like that's just the weird part too is like was this just a strange kind of a coincidence where it was like uh, they kind of clipped him and didn't notice and then he's pissed because he just got run over by a car and then he goes over to kind of he's like it's almost like road rage right he's like ah, and he like smashes the <laughs> <laughs> woman and then it's all of a sudden he gets a response that he's not expecting and or she i don't know right it, it. and uh, and then just books it so they're like okay this is a massive thing right because the car is big right well, a car is a massive thing it's much bigger than a person and it's bigger than a Sasquatch, totally. even if they're not initially, like, you know, maybe he's just pissed and he's like, just, Argh. That's possible. I don't know. And we're back to your quail argument, though. It's because it's kind of funny. It's like, on the one hand, <laughs> these things have to be smart enough to not be found and they bury their dead and they, you know, they move mm-hmm. their th- remains and they can't find any trace evidence. Or they disappear like Santa Claus. Right. But then on the <laughs> other hand, they're just like quails and they walk out right in front of cars, even though they had all kinds of time in the world, because it's the middle of the night, to That's cross true. the road. That's true. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. One evening. So it's like maybe dusky. Like, so. I don't know. It's just hard to see. I don't know. That's, that's weird though. How would you not see that creature before you hit it? Again, it's almost like, are they doing it on purpose? Is this like purposeful confrontation? What if it had just like apparated and apparated right at the moment that the car was passing? <laughs> so it's totally skinwalker coming through a portal. Yep. Mm-hmm. Ends up right in the middle of the highway. And he's like, what the heck? Oh, it was like man. the movie Deadpool 2 you just watched where the guy, he travels back from time. He just randomly ends up at this one area of the world where there's these two hicks at the back of the car right. and they're just <laughs> chugging beers and just tailgating. Yeah. <laughs> like, but anyways, um, let's get into this 19, 1992 sighting from South Dakota because this ties in really nicely. We have two, we have a vehicle again in this story. Yes. And again, this is thanks to Matt Drew for digging this up for us. All right. So our story begins in 1922. A family of three was camping in Wind Cave National Park a place they had been to several times previously for summer recreation. But after this incident, they would never return to that part of the state ever again. 
The incident must have taken place in August or late July, as the witness stated that his father had actually decided to plan the trip a few weeks before his son, which is the narrator of the story, returned to school that fall. However, normally this family camped in the early summer slash late spring. So this was kind of an unusual trip for them in that regard. Okay. All right. So this is from the witness. It was Saturday night and very calm around our campsite. Many people had left during the day, so there were few kids running around. At around 10.30 p.m., I decided to go to bed. I was bored, and my parents were entertaining another couple. I laid down and turned the radio on while I drifted to sleep. All right, now shortly after this, the young boy awoke to his parents bursting into the RV. His father was scrambling to find something tucked deep inside a storage bin, and when he pulled it out, it was his prized gun. (laughs) So the son realized this was kind of uh, freaky stuff. Anyways, meanwhile, he noticed his mother was just absolutely terrified. He had never seen her like that in her life. All right, so this is back to the witness here. They were standing by the door when suddenly something slammed into the back of the RV. I thought someone had hit us with a vehicle. The window in the back was smashed and the curtain was on the floor. I moved towards my parents when again something slammed into the back of the RV. At the same time, a deep rumbling sound came from the same direction. I never thought my mother could scream so loud. My father raised the pistol and fired through the window opening. We waited quietly for something to happen. Whatever it was, it must have run off. All right. Okay. So, okay, essentially what happens after this is this family throws all their shit into the RV and takes off and they just leave. Yeah. Middle of the night, it's like 11 p.m. by this point, and it's about a four-hour drive home. Well, I'd be doing the same thing. <laughs> yes, me too. There's no way. You're How Literally, ca- you're so compromised at that point because your back window is like open. Yeah, you're not even secured at all. Like imagine, imagine the force what that must be to think that you were just someone rammed into the back of your RV with another vehicle. Insane. Insane. Yeah. It reminds me again a lot of the Ape Canyon, right? Yeah. The force of the ca- like on the cabin from above, like, and the rumbling sounds. All well, these things are strong. I mean, even in some of the, we haven't referenced it, but like, there's other descriptions where it's like obviously rocks being thrown, and the rocks are like the size of a basketball, and right. they're coming from like really far away. Mm-hmm. It's like you're, if you're throwing something that weighs that much that far, damn, mm-hmm. you should be in shot put in the Olympics. Okay, so this is kind of the backstory to what this young boy witnessed. Um, This is another quote from him. A few days later, my mother told me what had happened that night. So they never talked about it on the whole car ride home. They had four hours and they were just in dead sheer silence, just terrified. (sighs) Oh my God. All right. So he says, my parents were just about ready to go to bed. She said it was about 11.45 p.m. Okay, so quite late. And she was cleaning up outside when she noticed something large on two legs run from behind the RV into the forest. My father told her it was probably a bear. Then he saw it duck out and then back into the woods. There wasn't much light other than that from the lantern and the back window from inside the RV. He told her that this was no bear. By the time they were in the RV, so I guess they booked it in right away, and heard the deep guttural grunts coming from the creature... My father then slowly opened the door, and he was standing no more than 10 feet away, looking directly at him. He quickly slammed the door shut and went looking for the pistol. My father has never said much about whatever it was, but from his later descriptions, I believe he confronted a Bigfoot. 
He described it as covered head to toe with thick, dark hair and with a wide nose and piercing yellow eyes that glowed in the light. Okay. He estimated the height at over six feet and that it weighed over 400 pounds with huge arms and legs. And that's basically all he ever said. He refuses to talk about it with anyone. And then he says, yeah, we continued camping over the years. We never went back to that area. Why that's terrifying. <laughs> that's that is pretty terrifying. It's, it, it's oh man, it's like one of those things because I really want to go out into these places and try mm-hmm. to, you know, have one have an experience like that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, damn, that that's, would be that's definitely that'd be life changing. You know, and obviously we're covering violent we're covering violent attacks today. We're not just it's not just the uh, the gentle giant yeah. experiences. One thing that was unfortunately missing from this account was. Um, pictures of the RV like afterwards and I oh. I don't blame them because like obviously this this guy was a kid at the time he was like 8 or 10 or something right. and his parents definitely didn't want to be known for this like his father like he said he refuses to talk about it with anyone so again right it's this whole it was a, a extremely terrifying thing for them they never obviously got evidence or anything because they didn't need it right mm-hmm. they weren't trying to make a case yeah. but at the same time that would have been really interesting to see you know what else would be good proof that that event actually happened is like obviously unless they just unless the rv was just a complete write-off obviously they drove it away it was good enough to still leave yeah um, well it was from the back so it's not like it attacked the front. Right. So mm-hmm. this is so like what I'm trying to it's a motorhome, mm-hmm. not like a It's trailer. an RV. An RV. So they're yeah. So they're driving in it. Yeah. It's one big thing. Mm-hmm. So like they would have obviously had some sort of an insurance claim. I mean you're gonna fix it up, right? Unless I you're wonder. just gonna dump it in the park it at the dump and call it a day. Let's do some fact checking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I wonder. There would be some proof of this. Perhaps. Anyway. Perhaps. But again, right, this was just from um it was a blog called uh, phantoms and monsters mm-hmm. hmm. but very cool i like that because again like this guy wrote into this person who runs this website because they had been sort of chronicling a lot more of these and he's like you know what i'm just gonna add in my two cents because whatever. Yeah. but again right could be creepypasta who knows <laughs> you know what's a commonality i'm sort of realizing here with a lot of these violent attacks with the exception of ape canyon which if you believe the shot fired beforehand was how the story went then it's a retaliation story really in my mind but vehicles so we've got this 1970s yeah. one, jumps in front of a car, almost sends it off a ravine. Um, you know, a young, young uh, girl and her mother gets her head smashed when they mm-hmm. almost clip something. We've got this RV experience RV. here where there's a massive vehicle in potentially its space and they don't seem to like that. The carriage. Um, the carriage, mm-hmm. yeah, traveling down the road. It's the almost cabin. like the, the cabin. The, the cabin. The, yeah. I mean, you could argue that too. It's almost like the presence of anything large. You know what I mean? Obviously, a cabin is, like, stationary. It's mm. not the same as a vehicle. Like, just all of a sudden being this massive whale-sized thing, RV, parked in your space or whatever. Yeah. The Georgia Swamplands one is kind of a... But it was, that like, a camp, so maybe it was just yeah, intimidated by different. the size of the people and everything. But that's it's just it. Early. I mean, that's why we wanted to talk about all these variations today, because there are these differences. Like, Skunk Ape, Ohio Grassman, you know, Sasquatch on the East Coast, the Alma in Siberia, the Marked Hominids in Siberia to the East Coast of North America. Mm-hmm. All these different variations. It's I wild. It. It's just like... and. Exactly. Yeah. Regional differences. Um, are these connected? Are these separate? Are these, you know, so we're just, yeah, we're asking all these questions. That's right. One thing that I thought was really cool. Um, and this kind of goes back to like, we're not really going to dive into like theories or anything per se not today. or explanations like comprehensively, but I did want to throw out the Siatik, um, that we did mention in reference to the Ape Canyon incident. Right. Just to go back to that really briefly. Um, and I just thought this was so cool because, 
This has several different variations in the indigenous groups of the West Coast into the interior and all the way up through the Athabasca and into the East Coast. So everyone in... Um, everyone's got their own version. (laughs) That's a really poor way of phrasing that. But essentially, one of these is called the Siatik. And it's also called um, Sietko. So that would be S-E-A-T-C-O. Right. And I think that is kind of like an anglicized spelling. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of loosely translates as the night people. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in Salishan mythology... So this is, again, in the Washington area. Okay. The Siatko, or Siatik, are large, hairy wild men of the forest. There are two different types of Siatko that appear in folklore. One is powerfully powerful, yet comparatively benign, um, and there are four spirits referred to as these night people, similar to Sasquatch of the Halkomelon tribe. <laughs> Halkomelon tribe. Mem- Memlin? <laughs> Sorry, that's a really bad way. Sorry. But anyways, and then there's also on the flip side, these fearsome, malevolent man-eaters, sometimes referred to as stick Indians. And we had referenced that from Coralie when we did that's um, right. our Ogopogo episode that's and we right. visited the, um, was it the... Sinchwips uh, right. uh, Museum. And she made mm-hmm. the comment that we were asking her kind of questions about them and mm-hmm. she didn't even want to talk about it. This is... Great. Okay, so I'm going to get into that. So, again, these two beings are often confused in folklore and anthropology. And it's believed that a lot of this has to do with the fact that, again, people don't like to speak to it. They don't like to do this because they believe it antagonizes these spirits. And so if you call them or refer to them in their Salish names or even in... um, well, sorry, if you refer to them in their Salish names, that kind of evokes it. But if you refer to it in the anglicized forms, um, so general terms like sitko, like I mentioned, this mm-hmm. literally just means spirit. Right. Um, this will kind of help avoid that. It'll avoid the attention or angering of gotcha. these sorts of um, entities. And they can be quite nasty. Well, that's just it. Yeah, they can, they can, they can muck around with you, like say like um, steal your erasers or like whatever, but then they also do things like cut your car brakes or something yeah. like that. So yeah, in terms of never, modern you know, uh, fears, but yeah, no. like that reminds me of gremlins, eh? Very way. much so. Very much so. Just entities that you don't want to mess with. And like, that's another interesting association with Bigfoot, Sasquatch-like creatures, right? Mm-hmm. That almost lends a little bit of credence to Fred Beck and mm-hmm. his idea of these things not being uh, terrestrial. Exactly. Um, and this came up directly in association to that 1924 account. Like, exactly. The indigenous peoples of the area said, oh, yeah, no, that's just uh, Siatik. And I'm totally saying right? that wrong. Sorry. Ah, <laughs> oh, wow. We're, cla- we're sorry, notorious sorry. for mispronouncing things. So freaking so. Canadian. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I stop apologizing so much. <laughs> we wanted to kind of end it off today, again, focusing on Ape Canyon, because to me, that's kind of one of the more interesting of these attack stories. They're all fascinating um, and unique. But that one's really unique because there's multiple people, there's multiple creatures, mm-hmm. rather than in all these other cases, there's only a single creature. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just really weird, right? Uh, so here's another, ex- this is another excerpt from my book. And re- in specific reference to the Skookum cast. Mm, because this okay. is one of the pieces of evidence that it's highly refuted. But at the same time, it is still one of the best ones. It's very much like the Patterson-Gimlin film. Okay. Where it's either 
really great evidence, but it's also a highly contentious issue at the same time. Mm. So I'll just read this out. What, sorry, what was? Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you don't remember, do you? Okay, no, I'm just okay. for the listeners. Uh, <laughs> no. So the yeah, okay. So the Skookum cast was essentially in 2000. There was a team of researchers that were looking for evidence of Sasquatch at Mount near Mount St. Helens. Right? Okay. They set traps, not like traps, like bear traps, but they set like bait, um, trying to essentially get a glimpse of the creature. Right. So I'll read this out. So Alma and Skookum are some other names that have become, been come to associate, have, <laughs> that have come to be associated <laughs> with the Sasquatch. However, Skookum is certainly more well known as a term and can be found all over the Pacific Northwest and in, in the United States and in Canada. The word Skookum translates to swift water or powerful water. However, linguists have found that over the centuries, this word has evolved to become a descriptor for these giant hairy neighbors of ancient indigenous peoples. So one such location is in Washington state at Mount St. Helens, which is what we're talking about right now, where indigenous stories tell of the Skookums or Sasquatches carrying off men who trespass in their territory. Like Albert Osman. Very much so. So in the year 2000, something bizarre took place. At Skookum Meadows in Washington State, a team of researchers set out to try to capture an image or a footprint from a Sasquatch and ended up with much more than they expected. After setting out apples as bait and making typical wood knocking and other sounds associated with Sasquatch encounters, the team would awake the next morning to find a half-body print of a massive, unknown, hairy hominid who left an impression in the soft earth. So essentially, this was the ass print of a Sasquatch. Okay, like most evidence of Sasquatch or Bigfoot, the Skookum cast, because of course they would take a plaster cast of this, mm-hmm. um, would be criticized by many as a hoax. The Smithsonian Institute outright refused to examine the cast, mm. while others in the scientific community believed believe that it is authentic, and mm. thus the search continues. What's, I rem- sorry, oh, sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say, like, the Smithsonian outright refuses to look at it. That is bizarre to me. This team of researchers, I don't actually have the list. Um, I'll bring up the names in part two. Mm-hmm. But these, are, these aren't just people, you know, without any credentials going out in the bush. They're, these were they're university I'm, tenured people. Yes. And some of them lost their tenure because of this. Yes, they did. This. And I believe they were with UCLA. Right. I'll have to triple check that, but I believe multiple two, at least two of them were from UCLA, PhD researchers. Wasn't there one from UBC? There may have been a UBC researcher as well. I, I, I will pull up the full list. Yeah. Um, but we're going to get into all of that. Like, that's what part two is going to be focused on, is more so taking this anecdotal evidence, and then let's look at the evidence yes. and everything throughout history, right? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll be going through evidence. We'll be going through more encounters that aren't of the violent nature and kind of drawing some connections to and just... Trace encounters. Kind of. tra- yeah, exactly. Like Trace evidence is huge with this. Yep. We do have cases where there's like fur of like the Yaren, say, or in blood. China or, bl- or blood. Mm-hmm. That's one that's going to come up blood in part two as well. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's usually inconclusive. It just leaves more questions than answers. Yeah. So if we're, we're kind of coming down to the end here for part one. Yep. We definitely touched on a lot of different areas around mm-hmm. North America. We went all over. We've bounced all over. We hope that you guys have been able to follow it okay. Mm-hmm. But I feel like people in the States will have a better gist of the geography than we do. Sure. And <laughs> but even so, like, it is very basic. Whatever. Definitely. What do you make of, um, what are your final thoughts on sort of some of these differences we've talked about or the idea of things being violent? Well, I don't want to give my final thoughts yet. I don't like to do that until we get to the well, end, final thoughts end for of the road. Today. But I do believe, though, that we can account for these differences based on just the fact that this is such a large landmass, that there are going to be regional groupings and regional identities, and these could be spontaneously evolving 
intermingling or separately. Like, you know what I mean? So that's kind of my approach. What do you think? Well, no, I think I, I would agree with you. And I just think that's, I mean, there's, there's so many different points of interest with this subject, right? The idea of an existence of a real creature, like you just said, the, the regional differences, whether or not they're related, whether or not they know of each other. Mm-hmm. And just the idea that we haven't found a corpse, right? We haven't found bodies. We found some trace evidence that it's always refuted. But the idea that there could be these unique characteristics, like a Sasquatch in BC, unique. The uh, Mekeni in Siberia, completely unique. Mm. Marked hominids in on the East Coast and in subpolar regions, different, completely unique. Yet at the same time, all of these different hominid-like creatures have, are existing undiscovered. Mm. It's not just one. It's not just a Sasquatch, and there's a bunch of them across the world. Mm-hmm. It's different hominids, and it's where we get to the Yaren, where we get to the Orang exactly. That is, some of these have to be real, right? Well, some of these it. have to exist. And even just your phraseology there where you're like undiscovered, that in itself is a fallacy because we are talking about so many multiple accounts from so many different sources yeah. throughout so much time. Definitely. So that to me, again, that's why we're not like kind of posing the question like, oh, do these things exist? We're kind of coming from the idea like at more of an anthropological maybe approach where it's like these things do exist and let's kind of look at it all as like a whole picture as opposed yeah. to kind of like picking, picking piece in, picking parts, going to the pick and pull. That's right. Pick and pull, pick and pull Sasquatch stories. Pick and pull Sasquatch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if you guys can't tell by now, I mean, we definitely believe that these things exist. I'm leaning I'm, towards obviously cryptozoological phenomena, but I'm we will discuss. I'm pretty ambiguous but I do think that there is something to it. Mm, well, there's absolutely something mm-hmm. to it. I mean, even in the era of yellow journalism that we mentioned, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming out, but then that's not a reason to discount all of it, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same as like today. It's almost exactly the same as today. We live in an era of yellow journalism right now. You go online, 99% of what you find is this is that. It's yeah. not real. Yeah. You have to really be, have critical thinking and dig through it. I don't even it. want to say it, but I'm going to say it. Fake news. Like, you know, like all this kind of, yeah. all these phenomena, right? These, yeah, it's just part of the times. And yeah. I feel like that again has, has repeated itself in the past. Totally. So. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, in a weird flip way, that almost to me means that some of these stories are more real. Like there's real ones in and amongst all of the nonsense, right? The Um, nugget. And the the North Bay nugget. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we're searching for. We're searching for our own nugget. So thank you guys so much for listening to this part one um, discussing Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Mm. and hominid-like creatures. Mm -hmm. We just wanted to say, obviously, thank you so much to our producer, Charlene Ramler, Mm -hmm. and to all of our Patreon supporters, and you guys can help support the show too, um, patreon.com forward slash into the portal, and we've got two new episodes coming out this month that are really, really cool. Yep. Um, Where can you find us, Amber? Oh, well, we're always active on our socials, so come hit us up on Twitter at Into the Portal one mm-hmm. as well. Our Facebook forum group, so that's just Into the Portal podcast, mm-hmm. and yes. you can like the page, you can join the group, like the forum, and yeah. get into some fun conversations. And where else are we? We're on Instagram, too, yeah. as always. Um, and our website, intotheportal.com. Check us out. Like, we've got the blogs up, we've got all kinds of cool stuff going on, so check us out on intotheportal.com, and uh, again, we will be back very very soon with a film friday for Mm y'all so stay tuned